Need to study on the go? Stay engaged and on track with the Osmosis mobile app. Access thousands of concise, visually engaging videos, questions, high-yield notes, decision-making trees, and more, anytime, anywhere, online or offline. Download it today on the App Store or Play Store. Visit osms.it rtl mobile to learn more. Hi, I'm Shibuglani, welcoming you to Raise Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, an ongoing exploration about how to improve health and healthcare. The notion of a person having multiple personalities is most often associated with mental illness, but today's guest, Dr. Richard Schwartz, contends that it's actually the nature of the mind to be subdivided. Dr. Schwartz is the creator of Internal Family Systems, an evidence-based therapeutic model that depathologizes the multi-part personality. He is currently on the faculty at Harvard Medical School and has published five books, including No Bad Parts, Healing Trauma, and Restoring Wholeness with the Internal Family Systems Model. I missed him at the Psychedelic Science uh, talk where we've had fellow speakers. It was standing room only. It was packed, but I'm excited that we were able to get him on the RaiseLine podcast so we can share some of what makes him and the IFS system so innovative in, in the field of psychiatry. So, Dick, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be with you, Shev, and thanks for inviting me. We always like to ask our guests in their own words to describe what got them first interested in healthcare, and in your in your case, then psychology. Well, I come from a, a highly medicalized family. I, my father was a prominent endocrinologist and researcher, physician, helped us to create Rush Presbyterian St. Luke's Hospital in Chicago. And I, I'm the oldest of six boys, and I was supposed to be a physician, and I was spared that fate because I had kind of ADD. And so I wasn't a great student, and I, I didn't get the grades to do that. And, and three of my brothers are physicians, actually. So, yeah, so I was indoctrinated into that world pretty well and also came out of the family feeling pretty worthless because I couldn't be like them. And, and so part of the reason I think I wound up working so hard to create this is to prove to my brothers and my father that I had some value. So, yeah, IFS is really the product of, of all of that. And, and I got to see what the life, you know, I think back in those days, it wasn't quite as bad as it is now in terms of how hard physicians have to work and not just physicians, but all healthcare professionals and how much stress they're under. And, but I did see, and I don't know that it's changed all that much, what the ordeal of medical school was like, which, you know, you now firsthand now and how much it was a kind of initiation by fire. You know, there was this, my father would talk about this, how it was really designed to test people to see if they can take it. Yeah, no, there are a lot of, there are a lot of like barriers, I think, to becoming a clinician that are just, I think, put up there straight for supply demand reasons. More people have generally wanted to get into these programs than there are spaces available. So if you put up a national test like the MCAT or, USMLE, and that helps weed people out. But then also, you know, because to some extent, it's kind of just a, like, how bad do you want it? Like, and even if it's like a random, you know, do you really need organic chemistry to be a good clinician? 
most most clinicians don't think that's the case. And thank you for being candid about kind of your own family dynamics growing up, because certainly that's something I've talked about in the podcast. And it's important for us to be real with each other and vulnerable, where like part of my decision to go back to med school is I'm sort of the black sheep in the family where my mom's a physical therapist, my dad's a doctor, my sister's a dentist and brother-in-law's a dentist. And I just did, I was a tech entrepreneur. And so that used to be maybe 30% of why I went to med school in the first place. Now it's 5%, but it's still there. I want to be real. So, you know, maybe before we go right into IFS, which is going to be the meat of the conversation, you know, how did you, can you talk to us a bit about college and then kind of how your own career trajectory too, like what are some of the milestones were leading to you being very well known now, having standing room only speaking gigs at, at important conferences? Yeah. So like I said, I wasn't a great student and I went to a small liberal arts college and from which you graduate with no real marketable skills whatsoever. And so, but during college, my father would get me a job on the psych unit at, at Rush, actually. Back then it was Presbyterian St. Louis Hospital. And I thought, something's wrong with this picture, the way it was a very psychoanalytic unit. And I would, it was a teenage, for, for teenage kids, basically. And I would get close to these kids, and then I would see how, because I'd be working weekends, I'd see how their families would scapegoat them and attack them during the weekends in the in the day room. And then I would hear about their sessions where the families weren't mentioned and it was all about their pathology. And I thought, there's something wrong with this. And maybe there's a better way to do it. And then when I got out, I heard about family therapy, which was an incipient movement at the time and was a kind of rebellion against the excesses of psychoanalysis. And so I became very passionate about that. and. In the you know in the early days of family therapy, I was a kind of rising star. I co-wrote the textbook that everybody used, and and thought that was going to be my career, until uh, it turned out that family therapy didn't do the whole job. Yeah, yeah, no, very interesting origin. And so so yeah, when when did you have that realization that ultimately led to the birth of IFS? And maybe and for our audience, you know, hopefully most of them have heard of it, but for those who haven't, could you give us kind of your elevator pitch to healthcare professionals about about it and how it works? Yeah, so, you know, to prove family therapy was the be all and end all, I did an outcome study. I was working in a research place in Chicago and tried to do it with bulimia as a symptom. So I had about 30 bulimic patients that I organized their families with and tried to reorganize the families just the way the book said to. And these these kids, you know, didn't realize they'd been cured by my interventions and they kept binging and purging. So I began asking why, and they started talking this language of parts. And they would say, when something bad happens, it triggers this critic who's calling me all kinds of names inside. And then that brings up a part that makes me feel totally worthless and alone and empty. And that's so dreadful that the binge comes in to get me away from that. But then the critic comes back about the fact that I binged and that goes right to the heart of that part that feels so alone and empty and worthless. So they were in this vicious cycle all the time. And that felt intriguing to me at the time because I hadn't studied intrapsychic process deliberately because I was a family therapist. So I really had to learn from my clients what was happening in there. And I could hear, you know, family therapy is all about systems and systems thinking. 
and I could hear how these parts were operating as a kind of inner system. So I became intrigued, and long story short, it took a while, but I learned that none of these parts are what they seem like, that they are good, what other systems might call subpersonalities that we're born with, but they get forced out of their naturally valuable states into extreme roles that can be very damaging. And they get frozen in time during traumas and they live as if you're still five years old and they still have to protect you in the way they did back then. And they also carry what I'm gonna call burdens, which are extreme beliefs and emotions that came into your system during the trauma and then sort of graft onto these parts like a virus and drive the way they operate. And so it took me a number of years to get clear about any of that. And it was amazed, you know, I was amazed because I had assumed that they were what they seemed and that the critic was some kind of internalized parental voice and the binge was an out of control impulse. But just getting curious and having clients listen to these parts or speak for them, I learned that that wasn't the case, that even the most extreme ones, if you were to ask, what are you afraid would happen if you didn't make her feel like shit all the time or you didn't take her off into a bench, they would talk about other parts that they were protecting or that they were trying to get the client away from and that they they really thought they needed to do that because they really thought she was still five years old and they were doing the role that they were got into that back then. And so as I got all that, I really started helping clients stop fighting with their parts or try to get rid of them and instead start listening to them. And in doing that, the big discovery of IFS is as I was trying to have them dialogue, let's say I'm trying to have you talk to your critic and I'm a family therapist, so I'm trying to have you listen to it, but suddenly you're furious with the critic. And it reminded me of family sessions where I'm having two people talk to each other and that a third party jumps in and everything goes south. So I might say to you, could you ask the one who hates the critic to give us a little space to finish this conversation? And most people could do that pretty readily. And when they did, they would shift. And it was like this other person came out who suddenly was curious about the critic and even had some compassion for it and was calm relative to it and confident relative to it. And when I had you in that state, the critic would relax and, and tell its secret history of how it got forced into its role and talk about the parts it protected. And so as I did that over and over with all, all kinds of extreme parts, it dawned on me that, you know, maybe there aren't any bad ones, which it turns out 40 years later is the case. But that person who would pop out when other parts would open space, turns out isn't everybody, can't be damaged, and knows how to heal. And that's the big discovery of IFS, that what I call the self with a capital S is, is there. And the job often is just opening enough space for it to pop out and start relating to the parts or relating to other people in the room. Wow, that, that is an incredible aha moment for sure. And something very relatable. I mean, even on this podcast, we've, you know, we've had a lot of people in the psychedelic space talking about this and psychedelics clearly are a, one mechanism to help people understand that they have different selves. One of the people we had on the podcast 
a year and a half ago is Jim Fadiman, who wrote the book Symphony of Selves, which is very much, you know, references and is based on a lot of your work too. And, and I'm curious, so how did, you know, you started working, maybe you had this aha moment working with patients with bulimia, who had the, you know, the different parts that were causing them to do these different behaviors, binging and the purging. What, what like indications have you found in your work with IFS you can apply to anybody really, but what are some like maybe the DSM-5 indications that you think are, are most effectively addressed through IFS? Well, we work with most every diagnosis. And, you know, for me, the DSM is really just a fairly accurate description of clusters of protectors that people have, which is a very depathologizing. And I, I don't know if I talked about protectors and exiles yet, but when I was trying to map out the territory of these parts, it came clear there was a distinction between parts that other systems might call inner children who, before they're hurt, are these wonderful, playful, lively, creative parts of us, loving, but they're also the most sensitive part. So they're the ones who get hurt the most. And after they get hurt, now they carry the burden of worthlessness or of terror or of emotional pain. And they can overwhelm us with those feelings because they just sit in all that. And so we almost naturally try to lock them away in inner basements and have then these other parts have to become protectors to protect them so they don't get triggered and overwhelm us or keep us away from them. And some of them are what we call managers. They're trying to manage our life so they don't, the exiles don't get triggered. And others, if they do get triggered, but an exile does get triggered, go into a kind of impulsive, reactive place to try and take us out away from all the pain or the shame or the terror. And so most DSM, I mean, I could, if you gave me a category, I could give you the common protectors that it's actually describing. And again, that's a very deep pathologized way of understanding it because then you help the client just start to get to know the part that makes them an addict or the part that you know goes into a, a sudden rage out of the blue or all those things that wind up them labeled personality disorders or addicts or whatever the diagnosis is. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, so for example, like, you know, just today we had a lecture on, on PTSD, right? Which obviously is a big, you know, that's the first DSM category for MDMA therapy that hopefully will get approved in the next, you know, couple of months or so. You know, maybe we could use that, could we use that as an example of like people who've experienced severe traumas enough that, you know, they're having these recurrent intrusive thoughts, flashbacks, you know, was that a particular part that's been damaged, so-called, or like, yeah, how, how do we, how do we work through, like, how have you worked with a PTSD patient? It's not damaged so much as exiled. So, Excellent. Sorry. so the flashbacks and all of that generally come from these parts we've, we've tried to lock up because we don't want to, you know, feel any of that anymore or see those scenes anymore. So those would be the exiles that are still stuck maybe in the combat scene or, or in a scene when you were molested as a child or something like that. So we tend to try our best and everybody around us, because this is a rugged individualist culture, tells us to just move on, don't look back, just let it go. A lot of psychiatry tells people to do that. And in the process of doing that, we're locking away the parts that were most hurt and carry the memories 
and everything else from the traumas. And so as we then try to move on in our life, they're trying to let us know we're in here. Deal with us. And they're giving you the flashbacks and and all the the emotions, and they're interfering in your life because they don't want to be left behind. And so we've actually done a considerable amount of research with IFS and PTSD, very successful. And one big study just completed it, Cambridge Health Alliance. And, and so simply getting PTSD patients first to go to the parts that are, that are trying to protect them and manage their these exiles, which often they're doing in extreme ways, and honor them for their attempts to protect, help them see they don't have to do it quite that way, and get permission from them to then open the door to these exiles, and then start getting these these parts that are giving you the flashbacks and so on out of where they're stuck in the past and help them unload all the the memories and everything that they're still carrying so they can live with you. Because the other downside to exiling all these parts, you know, most people think they're just moving away from the memories, sensations, and emotions, not realizing they're locking away their essence. They're locking away their most precious parts because these are the ones who would hurt the most, but they're also the ones that give us all the joy in our life or give us creativity, lots of ideas, and playful. And, and so we're as we continue to stay away from them, our life becomes more and more limited. And so just bringing them back and healing them allows us to be much more complete and integrated. And so anyway, yeah, that would be a different way to understand PTSD. Hmm. This is super interesting. And, and yeah, I mean, again, the way you're describing it, I can see, I can guess why you were speaking at psychedelic science, because Obviously, those you know people who've done psychedelics know that there's often that understanding and that patience. Like MDMA will lead to being more patient, less defensive, you know, coming to terms and accepting your different different parts fully. How did you get involved in in that work? I mean, have you done much work with IFS and psychedelic therapy in combination, or other therapeutic modalities, or or even pharmacological modalities? I have mainly ketamine because it's legal, but I run a series of, I think now it's five different retreats with ketamine and IFS with my co-leaders named Sonny Strasberg, who was also at that meeting. And I'm amazed at the combination, actually. I got interested because initially, I, I think you mentioned you've had Michael and Annie Mithoffer on your show. So they're well-trained IFS therapists. And I don't know if they mentioned it, but Michael called me excitedly once early on in the in the research with MDMA saying that he was finding that when people took particularly higher dose MDMA, they would spontaneously start doing IFS without any coaching from the, from the facilitator. They would just start seeing their parts and they would start relating to them from what I call self. And he t kept track of how often that happened. And he was finding about 80% of the time they were spontaneously doing IFS. So it was validating to me because it seemed like maybe I had just stumbled onto a way of healing that we all know how to do once we get all these protectors out of the way, which is what MDMA seems to do. It seems to put to sleep a lot of these parts that are trying to manage us. So you access a whole lot of self. Your heart's very, very open. 
And that's a big invitation for all these exiles to come in and get some attention. And so that got me very interested. And then about, I think, four years ago, Phil Wolfson contacted me because he was getting interested in IFS and invited me to be part of one of his retreats with Ketamine and, and introduce IFS to his staff and the, and the group there. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, it's interesting. And the Midhoffers had good luck with the MDMA. But we do pretty well without psychedelics. But, you know, we do get stuck at some time, sometimes. So I went ahead and did it. And I was just amazed at how, how much it accelerated the work to have the medicine really, again, just gave people this tremendous access to this self and then that was an invitation for these exiles and then we could do in one like 20 minute session what otherwise it might take 10 sessions to do and that's held up that that has just been amazing to me and so our later retreats have been by invitation because we want to bring this to leaders so we're we're inviting leaders of, in various fields to come. And yeah, it's, it's just been amazing. Wow, that's awesome. And, you know, again, it's obviously very appealing to take something that would normally take 10 sessions and be able to replicate it through some pharmacotherapy and, and you know, IFS in one session. You know, obviously we have in a culture that wants instant gratification, that wants magic weight loss pill like Ozempic, uh, obviously there's big business in that. But you know, I'm on the psychiatry clerkship right now, and, and you obviously have treated a lot of patients over the past several decades. The The reason, I, just for our audience to be clear, the reason I think this is so valuable, this combination, is that there are a lot of people who give up too early before they see, you know, it takes like an SSRI four to six weeks to even kick in. Or if someone has, you know, PTSD and the you know, they're waiting for the SSRI to kick in, but they also are doing cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, they're getting exposure to the things that are causing them trauma and they may not do the full course. And so if you're able to get them faster results, they may stick with it longer and, you know, become maybe a lifelong student of it. So I think that's a really important realization or discovery you guys have made. Where, where do you see it going? Obviously, once MDMA is approved by the FDA or psilocybin shortly after, are you going to continue experimenting with IFS in combination with psychedelics or other modalities? Yeah, I hope to. Yeah, that's the plan. I, I love the intimacy of these groups. We, you know, when we have, when we do it, it's the last one we did was, what was it? 27 people and the groups would get so close. And, you know, as people are being so vulnerable and helping each other, it creates this big self of the group, just like I'm talking about internal. And so it's wonderful just to be in that energy as a facilitator. So I love doing it, and I really we ha we now have a really talented and what we call self-led team that we do it with, and and again I'm I'm trying to bring this to leadership, so it's part of my project to try and bring IFS to larger systems, right, rather than just in psychotherapy. So all of that combined makes me very motivated to keep doing it, and you know I'm very fond of of ketamine. It's been really good for me also. I don't have nearly the experience with MDMA or psilocybin either, but I'm, I'm very open to seeing what could happen. 
Yeah, no, very interesting. So where when you see the, you know, the, your work kind of progressing over the next, say, five, 10 years, you know, maybe you can talk us through, like, how, how popularly accepted is IFS now? Like, do you have any sense of how many therapists are practicing it? How many patients have gone through it? And then I, I know you it's been popularized by some really well-known figures like Tim Ferriss, I believe, I think you've spoken to and, and maybe even done a session with him live, I believe. So, so yeah, I would love to know in your, you know, where is that now? And then where do you see it in the next five or 10 years? Yeah, for whatever reason, you know, I, I, this is our 40th anniversary, like I said, and I labored in relative obscurity until I'd say the last eight years or so. And for some reason, it just has taken off in a way that's almost out of my control. And so we now have like 20,000 people on a waiting list for our trainings. And, you know, I hear about it everywhere. You know, you see my books in airports. And so that's all been very gratifying and a bit overwhelming. But it's along the lines of what I'm saying. I think this approach can have a big impact on the culture. And that's my goal now is I'm shooting higher. I really want to. And, you know, our culture and, and the world really needs a different paradigm that can lead more toward self-led relating and knowing, you know, I talked about burdens, but there are also what we call legacy burdens, which come down through the generations from a trauma that was not at all related to you. And you see the Middle East now, and there are legacy burdens driving both sides, and there's very little self to be found. So I'm aiming big, you know, I want to have an impact at that level. And it may not happen in my lifetime, but I know this model has that potential. Yeah, no, that's, I'm glad, I'm really glad you mentioned intergenerational systems and trauma. Our board member at Osmosis, his name is Mitch. His wife is Rachel Yehuda, who, who maybe you know or have worked with. Yeah, I, I've met Rachel, yes. Yeah, she's great. And her, her respect her work, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, she, she's obviously at Mount Sinai and did a lot of that seminal research showing that you know, epigenetic markers of trauma were passed on from Holocaust survivors to their grandchildren who, who never directly experienced that, that, you know, terrible atrocity. And so very interesting to know how IFS could be used to maybe heal, you know, intergenerational trauma as well in conjunction with this. One of the reasons we've been so focused on psychedelics, but also mental health in general at osmosis, first of all, everyone seems to be so focused on this because we launched this podcast during COVID and many of our audience have burned out or suffered moral injury during COVID from all the things they saw and have experienced. And we recently had Josh Gordon, the head of NIMH on the podcast too, to discuss some of this as well. I'd love to hear your take on provider burnout and moral injury. What are the things we could be doing to better support them? And, you know, I'm sure you've done IFS for providers, you know, would love to hear any any take on maybe patterns that have emerged from doing IFS with this group of people. Yeah, you know, and as I watch my brothers struggle sometimes and uh, a lot of other extended family, I'm pretty intimately connected to this issue of burnout. And, and it's just getting worse. The healthcare system is deteriorating in a lot of ways. And, and yeah, like during COVID, it was really bad. So you know, many healthcare professionals come into it because they have these big hearts. They have what we call care, big caretaker parts, big caretaker managers that that want to 
help and also don't let them take care of themselves that well. So we worked, for example, with nurses in particular who have that in spades. And so if you can help them go to the caretaking part and let it know that it doesn't have to dominate the way it does and that they can try to balance their life in other ways and that there is this self in there who can lead and can be the one interacting with patients and that they also don't have to take in all the pain. A lot of healthcare, and this is true of therapists too, feel like empathy is taking in all the pain of your patients and carrying it. And that'll burn you out very quickly too. And so we're learning, we're helping people learn the difference between empathy and compassion, which Tanya Singer is a brain researcher has shown, show up in different places in the brain actually. And that in compassion, you don't have to take in, like when I'm with a client, I'm not feeling their feelings. I get, a, I get some sense of what they're feeling, but mainly I'm just feeling a lot of caring for them. And so helping healthcare professionals lead from compassion rather than empathy also prevents burnout. And I can go on and on. I, don't, I know we don't have a lot of time, but there are these common parts that draw people to the field that if they, if they feel like have to dominate you, will burn you out. And so all of that on top of how hard it's become to be a healthcare professional means that there's just lots of turnover now. Yeah, that's. I'm really glad you mentioned the difference again between compassion and empathy. And just today, before we started the podcast, I mentioned I was talking to a resident who who's fairly burned out from all the all the stressors that you know it takes. And I think one of the biggest stressors I'm realizing being back in med school now is just you want to do so much for your patients, but just systemically you can't. There's just not. It's not set up for that. There's not enough social workers. There's not enough psychologists. Frankly, a lot of the, the patients are stuck in the hospital because we're just waiting to find a, a bed for them at a living facility or they're, they'll just go back to their families. Like Michael Midhoffer talks about this, how he was an emergency medicine physician first and then went back to do psychiatry because he realized that he was just kind of treating the symptoms of you know social determinants that were happening in these patients' lives. And if we could go upstream, we may be able to actually nip it in the bud and, and help fix it. So I think that's what IFS has the potential for doing for a lot of people and families. Yeah, I mean, there are, we train a lot of physicians now and, and they both learn how to be present like that in self, which is fairly effortless. It's very different than the parts of you that are really so eager to help and, and get so frustrated when you can't. And also to not focus so exclusively on, on the symptom, you know, it'll, and at least in some cases, medicine is designed to kill the messenger rather than listen to the message. So that if you have a patient who's got some some medical symptom, and we have we actually did a nice outcome study with rheumatoid arthritis. It's published in the journal Rheumatology with a control group and everything. And by simply having patients focus on their pain and get curious about it and ask some questions they would learn about the parts that were giving them the pain or exacerbating their pain to try and get hurt because they couldn't get hurt otherwise. And this was actually at Brigham and Women's in Boston. And, you know, it was Irish Catholic mothers 
who have these massive caretaking parts that never let them take care of themselves. And the parts that were furious with that were giving them the pain. And as we listened and, and tried to work it out between those two sets of parts, their arthritis got much better to the point where in some cases they it totally went away. So, so that is, a, is another way that physicians can help people listen inside and is, is more rewarding than just giving them medicine. Absolutely. Yeah, I've just literally been meeting patients with conversion disorder and somatic symptom disorders, and clearly not everyone has to have a DSM-5 diagnosable disorder to have back pain that comes from grief, as many people in like, Chinese culture develop, which is very interesting. So I'm glad you mentioned that. And, you know, it's also why people should care about this beyond, say, the field of psychiatry or psychology. I want to be respectful of your time, so I only had a couple other quick questions. Go ahead. I'm okay. Okay. The, the, the first is, you know, you have a waiting list of 20,000 people looking to learn and train. I'm just curious, how, how do we scale this out more? Like, are there, I'm sure you do in person, but also online, you know, wh why can't we get more trained quickly or even just individual caregivers? Ultimately, we're getting more healthcare at home. We have to get, you know, scope of practice has to increase because there certainly aren't enough psychiatrists or psychologists out there to be able to do this kind of work. Yeah. As you may guess, that's a question in my head all the time. And the problem we're facing is that you know, now we have 70 trainers and we can't come close to meet the demand. Uh, so we're running trainings all over the place, but the trainings are pretty labor intensive because it's a delicate, it's a pretty delicate endeavor to take people inside to these very vulnerable places. And we wanna make sure the therapists are very well trained and so our trainers need to be really well trained. So it takes several years to become a trainer. And so, you know, we've been cranking out trainers and trainings as fast as we can, but it's really hard to scale because of those constraints. And we have a three to one ratio between students of the trainings and we call program assistants who are trained in IFS and help the students because the trainings are very experiential people learn it by doing it actually and doing it with each other so that's the big constraint and so we're playing with are there ways to bring this directly to the public that could be safe and you know again coming from this medical family that first do no harm is in the back of my head all the time so you know i want to make sure it's safe but i think there are and, and we're playing with those ideas hmm, very interesting the tech entrepreneur side of me would love to hear more about that at some point, because I know there's several, you know, well-known academics who've taken their large body of work, in your case, 40 plus years, and been able to make it more democratized. Like there's a Stanford clinician who has an app called Reverie, which has brought kind of hypnosis, self-hypnosis to the masses, hopefully in a very safe way. I'm not sure I, I used it once, but I haven't really stuck with that or been as informed. Or, you know, Sam Harris had Waking Up, which is bringing more, you know, Buddhist philosophy and among other things, mindful-based stress reduction. So yeah, I could totally see an app or something coming together if you don't already have that. We don't. I was approached recently by a guy who wants to use artificial, I mean, yeah, AI, and actually demonstrated it. And he he set it up to where, this was for training therapists, but I could see how it could be used for the public too, where I'm the therapist and I'm 
asking questions and the AI is responding as a client would. And, and then there's an AI supervisor over here. And I was pretty impressed, actually. I'll definitely be following up on that because you preempted my next question, which is another favorite topic that our producer, Michael, knows I always like to ask about is on AI and how we can use it. We've had people talk about AI for clinical documentation, which is an obvious need. And I think where a lot of the quick wins in healthcare will be over the next two, three years, if not the next couple months. But having AI therapists or therapist helpers, because I could imagine you could fine-tune a model based on the most successful IFS therapists in terms of patient outcomes and patient ratings like empathy or sorry compassion not empathy necessarily you know having an IFS AI that can help bring it to the masses is I'm sure that's being discussed with this person maybe it's being discussed you know I still feel like when I'm with somebody a lot of the success of the work has to do with my presence and the kind of what I call self-energy that I'm conveying that people palpably can feel. And I don't know that we can train a computer to do that, but, you know, I'm, I'm open, I'm, I'm willing to explore it because I really do want to bring it in an affordable way to many more people, so. That's awesome. Well, I'm excited to see how it comes of it. And, you know, again, very excited about maybe even being able to be part of that kind of journey over the next couple of years. That's why I went back to Hopkins for med school. You know, what advice would you give to me as a, as a medical student or anyone listening to this, if they're in nursing school or early career PAs, whatever it may be about approaching their careers. So general career advice in healthcare. Oh, that's a big question. Just to know that you've chosen to do something that's going to be really stressful and that it can really help if you know how to take care of yourself emotionally, that you're going to need to do that or you will burn out, and that this is a system that can help with that. Yeah, that's, that's again, one of the main reasons, if not the main reason I invited you on, and I'm privileged that you joined us because I, I want people who listen to this to explore these things for themselves, and then if it works for them, hopefully bring it to their patients too. So, Yeah. My last question for you is, is there anything else you wanted to share with our audience about you, IFS, mental health in general, before we let you go for the evening? Huh. Well, some of what I said earlier, which is this is an alternative paradigm for understanding all kinds of what are seen as mental illnesses. And that I think one of the things I'm proudest of is that there are many, many heavily diagnosed people who feel hugely relieved to know that they're not sick, that, that, that they're just, because of the traumas they suffered, they have these parts that do extreme things that are stuck in the past, but they can all be worked with. And that people work with them on an ongoing basis, on a daily basis. So I'm, you know, I've, I've had very little you know, people teach IFS all over, but very few psychiatry departments yet. You know, I'm on the staff at Harvard through Cambridge Health Alliance. And so we have a little outpost there. But as far as I know, it hasn't really taken root anywhere else. And so that's part of my goal also is to, to just bring this different perspective on all these things that have been so medicalized. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Again, being on an inpatient at, at one of the best research hospitals at Hopkins, I've been shocked how few people actually know about 
you know, alternative approaches at this point. But one of the reasons I've come back to Hopkins is because they have a huge psychedelic research center. And I think that's a, that, that in combination with the real work, which is the therapy behind it, IFS, CBT, DBT, et cetera, will, I think, be the, be the game changer. Yeah, I, I think that's the other thing I'll say, which I think is becoming more common knowledge, that the medicine is not necessarily the healing agent, that the medicine opens a portal for a lot of healing. But to really heal, and it's an opportunity, but to really seize that opportunity, people need therapy. They need IFS or something similar to actually do a lot of the healing that, that this opens the door to. So, you know, I, I was disappointed with Michael Pollan's book because it's so focused on the medicine as the healing agent. Yeah. Michael Mithoffer and Rick Doblin, many of those provokes Rachel. Yehuda will be the first also to agree with you and say that it's really it's it's not psychedelic assisted therapy it's 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 therapy first and foremost and the psychedelics are just a portal and you could just be reading you could just go through there's a lot of other ways to get there but psychedelics just happen to be faster and more replicable it seems so yeah totally agree with that well this has been a real privilege of mine and a pleasure to have you on I'm a huge fan of your work and really appreciate you taking the time to share it with our audience as well thank you chef yeah I've really enjoyed it and be fun to further connect. 100%. I'll definitely follow up on the AI and the app. It's where my brain goes after this. So with that, I'd like to thank our audience for listening to today's show and remind them to do your part to raise the line, strengthen our healthcare system. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.